0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Pontius Pilate and Jesus Christ are a study in contrast. Pilate, a thoroughgoing man of the world, therefore, a man who was under the control of the ruler of this world, a man who was a man-fearer, Jesus, the man, as we've seen in the recent study, and that was the way in which Pilate spoke of him, the man, not just a man, the man who came from. Above The man by his own description who was gentle and humble in heart and was the picture of placid contentment in his life. Christ, Jesus, who was a man who lived in total submission to God, Christ, a God-fearer. Let's eavesdrop on a conversation between these two, which is found in the book of John chapter 19. We're actually going to interrupt a conversation that has been going on for the last three weeks as we've looked at the trial that Jesus was tried by the Roman government, and Pilate was the representative, he was the judge, the juror and also the one who pronounced the sentence on people who came before him and were tried before him. We're in John chapter 19 now, and I'm going to read beginning with verse 8 through verse 16. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, "'Where are you from?' But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. What we learn from this passage of Scripture in its entirety is that all authority is given to whomever has such authority by God. And therefore, each human being, each institution is liable to answer to God for whatever decisions that person or entity takes. And that behooves all of us who have been given some sort of authority whether it's in the church or in the community, in the government, it's our responsibility to realize that we are actually serving, not ourselves, not our community primarily, or our country. We are serving the Lord God, who is in fact, as was just sung, He is ruling and reigning. He is the sovereign of the universe. Jesus Christ says in this passage of Scripture that we just read that God has legitimized Caesar, Pilate, and Rome. You might say, wait a minute. Well, I'm going to ask you to wait a few minutes, and we'll see how that works. Let's go back at the top of our passage, and I'll make some comments along the way as we look to see how God is the Sovereign over our country and any human government and over our individual lives. Verse 8 says, therefore, when Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. What statement had he heard? Well, let's back up and pick up at verse 6 and 7. So when the chief priests and the officers saw Jesus, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him recall that according to Roman law, there was a certain pattern that was to be followed for there to be a sentence given regarding anyone who was standing trial. There had to be an accusation followed by an examination of the one who stood trial by the judge and then a defense that was given sometimes by a lawyer who was employed by the one who was on trial in the case of jesus he was his own defendant wasn't he? and he defended himself and clearly he did that and then finally a verdict is rendered and what we see in verse 6 is pilate saying i find no guilt in him this is the first of three times In this section of scripture that Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Good for Pilate. Because Jesus had not in any way transgressed any law of Rome. In verse 7, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. This was the real beef that the rulers of Israel had against Jesus. He was saying, I am the Son of God. And in fact, he's saying, I am deity. This is not the first time, by the way, in the Gospel of John, that Jesus has said as much about himself. He said, basically, I am God. More than one time, he's introduced himself by saying, I am, and filling in the blank. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I am, I am, I am. In so doing, he was declaring his deity. So, when this man, Pilate, heard what was said, we have to remember Pilate had a context, a personal context. His context was he grew up with the background of Roman pantheon of gods. And he had done some studying. He knew how in some of the myths and regarding especially the gods of Rome or Greece, how the story was often told of how one of the gods would come to earth and would choose someone to be his or her mate. And then they would have a relationship that resulted in the birth of a child. The child was a demigod, half God and half man. So when he heard what was said by this group of leaders, when they said that this man should die, Jesus, because he made himself out to be the son of God, he was saying maybe he is a son of one of the gods in the pantheon of Rome or Greece so he was superstitious and sort of religious isn't it interesting how religion which doesn't center in Jesus Christ invariably has a lot of superstition associated with it even Christianity can have versions of it that are loaded with superstition and how does that happen it's because people are not tied to the truth in God's word The way we can discern between the truth and a lie about any matter is to go to God's Word. Every question that you and I will ever ask or be confronted with pertaining to our lives is addressed somewhere in God's Word. So we go on now and look in verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. That's why he was afraid. He thought he might have been tampering with a god here, a demigod, And he didn't want any backlash from the gods that he had known or thought he knew. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? And Jesus is described as giving him no answer. So let's back over and figure out why Jesus gave him no answer. Was he being difficult? Well, look at this. 37th verse in the 18th chapter, and you'll recall if you were with us last week or you've read this section recently, verse 37 of chapter 18 says, Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. Jesus is declaring he is a human being. And for this I have come into the world. That presupposes another existence of Jesus before he come into, came into the world. We see Jesus here declaring, I'm fully human and I'm fully God to testify the truth. Whoever is of the truth hears my voice. Well, we see that Jesus didn't answer because he'd already given that information to Pilate. He was not trying to be difficult. He was just not needing to say what he just said to him before. And Pilate, in the next verse, 10, So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So what do we find here? This is what I introduced this section of Scripture by saying, that all authority, all governmental authority, human governmental authority, has been sanctioned by God in this sense, that those who are in authority in those governments or in those institutions They have to answer to the one true God. And let's look at Romans 13 again. As we read it earlier, I won't read the entire section, but I want us to look and consider one more time the introducing of this matter of our being submissive to the government's That we find ourselves under. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. That underscores one more time for us. What this passage over in John 19 has already communicated. Jesus has communicated. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And you can read further in there. If we look at the last verse of this section, verse 7, Render to all what is due to them, tax, to whom tax is due, custom, to whom custom, fear, to whom fear. The ESV version that Mike read from translates the word fear by respect. Respect to whom respect is due, and honor to whom honor is due. You know what is true of you and me if we know Jesus? We should be model citizens in the country in which we live. We should be people who obey the law. You may not like it that the speed limit on Mesa, which used to be at a certain point 50 miles an hour when you are going toward executive center, I mean, it just sort of chafes on me because I get there and you know, my foot gets heavy because I'm going downhill, and I want to go 50. That's the way I was trained, first of all, regarding Mesa and my driving on it. But it's changed. Some of you are too young to know that it changed, but it did change. And I'm bound by the law to drive no more than 45 miles an hour. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many of you broke the speed limit on the way to church today. Probably more than one, maybe myself included in that situation. We are to be people who abide by the laws of the land. Here's a good question. What, if any, are limits that God has set upon human government? the same limits that he had set upon the Roman government that was represented by Pilate, the same limits he had set on the Sanhedrin to render their own judgment, giving Jesus no fair trial, the same limits, the limits that would be these two limits, two categories. The first would be regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the most important of the two, really. If you'll go to Acts chapter 4 for a moment, in the short span of two chapters in Acts, we see Peter and John being arrested for doing the same thing. What were they doing? Were they breaking any law of Rome? Hardly. What they were doing, they were ministering to people. In the first case... In chapter 4, they came in the temple area upon a man who was in his 40s, and he was lame. And they healed him. More precisely, God's Spirit healed him through them. And then this man was among many. In that passage in Acts 5, we see that the number of men who had come to Christ... By this time, remember how many people came to know Jesus, both male and female combined together, probably some children too. How many came to Jesus on Pentecost? 3,000. By chapter four, just a couple of chapters over, that number had risen to 5,000. And this was beginning to really freak out the Israeli leaders. They were saying this something is happening here, and we got to get hold of this, and In addition to that, they're healing people. And the people will be in a frenzy all about that. So they called them on the carpet, Peter and John. And so they asked them, By what name do you heal this man? And what power? When they, in verse 7 of Acts For it says, when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people. He was being polite to them. If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel That by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He, that is Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven that has been given among men. Uh, which we must be saved. Talking about stirring up a hornet's nest. Let's read a little further. Now, as they observe, this would be the rulers. It would be Annas and Caiaphas and others of the high priestly family and other members of the Sanhedrin, both Sadducees and Pharisees. And notice what it says as they observe the confidence of Peter and John and understand. Stood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Do you know hanging out with Jesus leaves an indelible impression upon you? And therefore, He makes an impression on others about the uniqueness of people who know Jesus Christ? Because why? Because we have been with Him, He is our companion. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And he goes on to write, Luke does in verse 18, And seeing the men who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. Wow. That was hard for those guys not to come up with something to say. But what we see is they were closed-lipped because they had nothing that they could say. Well, A little time passed. They simply told Peter and John not to preach Christ again. Verse 19, don't preach the gospel. But Look what 19 says. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Well, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Have you ever been like that? Do you know Christ? Have you ever been like that? that you couldn't stop speaking about Jesus? And people didn't like it that you spoke about Jesus. And we're not to be rude when we share the gospel. By no means are we to be rude, but we're to share the good news. This is our calling, not just preacher's calling, all of us who know the Lord to share the good news. Now, chapter 5, not much time has passed Some things have happened, but here we encounter the apostles again and they're put in jail. Look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. What were they jealous of? Were they jealous of God, for God? Hardly. They were jealous because their influence was being reduced in megadoses because of what was happening in the city of Jerusalem through the preaching of the gospel by these country bumpkins from Galilee, these uneducated, untrained men, as they saw them. They laid hands on the apostles, and this was not for ordaining them, by the way, and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple. The whole message of this life, Life is capitalized, talking about Jesus. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. And then a report came to the leaders again. They were inquiring about these captives, these criminals, if you will. And there was no sign of them. The gate was still locked to where they were in the cell where they were. It was locked. They just disappeared overnight. But they went and they found them in the temple. The Bible says in verse 25, someone came and reported to these leaders, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Imagine that. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Yeah. Yeah. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. Now there it is. If the government were to tell me I can't preach the gospel, In a place like this, but I'm talking about in the public too. Remember, these people were out in the public. Granted, they were in the temple area, but they were not averse to preaching Christ wherever they went. They went, like Paul did, door-to-door undoubtedly, sharing the gospel. But what we know is, if we are ever given a mandate by the United States of America government not to preach the gospel except in the four walls of a building like this. We continue to preach it here, but we quietly go about it in personal relationships, preaching Christ. That is an abomination to God if we would submit ourselves to that kind of government. We're not to be rowdy about it. We're just to be people who are committed to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's another limitation that scripture would say is accurate. We're not to submit to authorities when the authorities command us to break the moral laws of the Bible. What we see happened in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, as Hitler was gaining momentum and he was instituting his program of ridding the nation and any nation that might be overtaken by Germany of people who are descendants of Abraham. And he made this decree. It was a law. Here's the law. You are, from this point forward, not to look at a Jew, not to speak to a Jew, you are not to do business with the Jew, you are to treat the Jews as as if they are non-entities. A large portion of Germany. Now there is a state church in Germany. It's the church that was basically spawned in the Protestant Reformation and the leadership of Luther. But those people, many of them, had become complacent, probably, about the Word of God. I don't know. I don't think there had been a revival in Germany in a long time, maybe dating all the way back to the Reformation in the 16th century. I'm not sure. But what I do know is that these people were satisfied for their own well-being not to have any interaction with the Jewish people, to treat them as no people whatsoever. One of those people was a well-known pastor. His name was Martin Niemoller. Niemoller was one of the most outstanding of God's preachers in the evangelical church in Germany. But after a while, and he began to observe what he was seeing there in the way of the way that the Jewish people were being treated, mistreated, he began to become more bold in the pulpit. And he talked to his people about the fact that this is not right. It's a break of God's will. And he substantiated that from Scripture. He knew full well that in so doing, he himself would likely be arrested. He was arrested, placed in a common jail. And... After having been there just a short while, one of his friends who had not heard, and this is a pastor friend, who would make regular trips to the jail to minister to people there, he was going from cell to cell, and he was shocked when he saw Niemöller behind bars, and he said, what are you doing here? And then Niemöller gave a simple answer as to why he was there, and then he concluded that answer by saying, why aren't you here is what he said ouch that must have hurt we must speak out against government suppression of biblical morals i remember and this goes back and i'm going to use myself as an illustration a couple of times here i don't like to do that but i was part of a group called el paso for jesus great group cross denominational lines was led by dear brother Barney Fields. Some of you know Barney and Money. And I was part of the steering committee of that group. In fact, I was at that time the leader of the group. And we came together. It was the time when partial birth abortion was being touted by advocates of such in the Congress. There was a vote. It was soon to be held. And so as we put our heads together, these pastors, we talked about, we need to pray to the Lord and ask him if he wants us to go to City Hall on the day that the the mayor and all the other representatives meet and make a petition that they write a letter to the Congress saying that the leadership and the citizens of El Paso are asking you not to vote for partial birth abortion. Well, I being the leader, I went with more than one other pastor and we got an interview with the mayor of El Paso. We went there and we wanted to tell him what we were going to do. The day before we had a meeting with him, told him what we were going to be doing to be put on the agenda. And it was a cordial meeting, actually. We all came back, and then I showed up, along with others. I was the one presenting the suggestion to our leaders in the city. And the mayor himself stood up and told me I had no right to do that. I began to read the letter. Well, I would disagree with him about that because abortion, I think nobody in their right mind would say you can kill a baby when it comes out of the mother's womb. From my perspective, life is human life when there is the meeting of a sperm and an egg in the womb of a woman. That's human life. It's not dog life or cat life. It's human life. And so, To take a life at any point along the way is abortion. And it's murder. It's killing somebody. Well, we saw that, that group of men and I, and there was no action taken on it. And that was a sad moment in our lives. In 1971, I was leading a youth group called Young Life in a public school. We had meetings once a month in the homes of children whose parents agreed for us to have our club there. And we'd have about 30 kids, maybe sometimes 40 on a good night. And we'd sing songs about the Lord, preach the gospel, and have a great time together. We were in the home of Bobby King, who was the president of the student body. There were no cell phones then. And I was on the way home. It was in November of 1971 and my a little apartment that Sally and I lived in we were wed and I, I drove in my VW home and got there and I got a phone call on the landline and I picked it up and said hello and it was Bobby King he said my father wants to talk to you I said okay put him on the line he said no he wants to talk to you in person so I went there and I had an idea of what might happen when I got there. I got there, and he said, I don't want any colored people coming to my house again like they did tonight. And I said, sir, people are people regarding regardless of their race. I said, are you a Christian, sir? And he said, yes, I am. I'm a deacon in my church. It was a Baptist church. He says, I have friends who are colored, he said, but when they come to my house, they come in the back door. I couldn't believe it. And actually, I began to weep at the thought that there was someone who was a so-called Christian who had that heart and that attitude. And he said, I said, well, we're going to be in heaven together. He said, no, I think there's compartmentalization in heaven. Now, that sounds funny. It wasn't funny at the time. Because that's what he relieved. And so, that kind of racism. I know we've had a lot of aberration of that in recent years. But look, racism is not of God. God is colorblind. And we need to understand that as the church. The big issue today, it seems like, at least the one that's got to my attention a lot, is the whole transgender movement. I'm not going to get into that, but it just doesn't make any sense that a person who was created by God to be a male would want to become a female or a female would become a male. And they're just misled. These children are being misled. And so we need to be people who speak up about that to teachers, are more importantly to people who are in charge of the school systems here. We're going to be hosting on the 28th of October. It's a long way off, but it was the earliest I could get. This dear lady, Katie McCoy, she's employed by the Baptist General Convention of Texas. She's a PhD graduate from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where she served on the faculty there. She is a woman of God a dear woman of God, she's going to come and she specializes in the matters of gender and gender dysphoria. She's going to be here as a guest in our church on that Saturday and she's going to speak to kids and to their parents and anybody else who's interested. We're opening it up as much as we can to churches all over town. Be praying for that, please. So, when Rome or the United States commands an immoral act or sanctions it, we have a responsibility to speak on behalf of the Lord in that situation. Pilate tried to change charge the crowd and change rather the crowd's opinion of Christ and sought to appeal to them to agree with his judgment. We know he sent Jesus off to Herod. What was Pilate's judgment? What was it? I find no guilt in him. So he sends him off to Herod, who was just a figurehead, but a recognized leader in Israel. Herod sends him back. Barabbas. Barabbas, he thought he could give them Jesus in exchange for Barabbas. They wanted Barabbas. They wanted Jesus to be crucified. The crowd would not relent. And Pilate caved in. Isn't that the way of the crowd and the way of so many people. Pilate must have seen his life flash before him as we read what we're going to read now from John 19 again, starting where we left off. Let's look at 11. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Who would that had been? Pilate was guilty, but not as guilty as Caiaphas and Annas and all those people probably, even Judas could have been both of them. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate had spent his entire life building a resume, he had served Caesar well, and he had been rewarded with promotions to the point at this time in his career, he was a proconsul of Palestine, and he could see all that coming down if this crowd of people who were upset with the judgment that he rendered of not guilty, if they took it to Caesar. And he had known that there were times when that had happened in his lifetime. And he was concerned about it. The Caesar was Tiberius, who was suspicious about things. He was like any leader of the world, probably worried about his own safety and security and his own legacy. By the way, several years after this, Pilate was transitioned by the Roman government to be proconsul of Syria, a neighboring region. And he was relieved of that duty due to poor performance. And he was banished for life to France. So he was a guy who was shaky to begin with in terms of his standing. And his career was going down the tubes, everything he had lived for. Therefore he reversed the verdict this is unbelievable. Look at verse let we pick up with verse 15 after he tried to play on their sympathies seeing Jesus all brutalized having been scourged they cried out away with him away with him crucify him pilate said to them shall i crucify your king the chief priest answered we have no king but caesar They were going to go and tell Caesar that Pilate was letting some renegade king come in and take over the area. And so, verse 16, then he handed him over to them to be crucified. There's a verse of scripture that I'm going to spend the rest of my time on today. Proverbs 29, 25. It says this, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Caesar feared man. He feared Christ, remember? He thought maybe this guy is a demigod. He feared Christ. Also, he feared the crowd, and he feared Caesar because Caesar had the ultimate power as far as Pilate was concerned. The fear of man brings a snare. Let's think a moment about what that snare is. It's the snare of the devil is what it is. And we see about this in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 7 and 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 26. The snare of the devil. What do we know about the devil? He's a bully, isn't he? He's an intimidator. He is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is intent upon bullying us into fear. Fear doesn't come from God. Fear comes from the enemy. And it's one of his favorite tools to detain us from preaching the gospel and being who we are. Also, he is a liar, isn't he? He's been a liar from the beginning all the way back to the Garden of Eden when we were introduced to him in the form of a serpent. He's a liar. He deceives us. He calls to us and whispers in our ear many times. He does this to say, they don't want to know about Jesus. You're not going to get a hearing if you're going to stand up for that which is morally right when we are being told by our government that something is wrong instead of our knowing what is right, not because we're any better than anyone else, because we know the Lord's Word and we're being obedient to the Lord's Word. He who trusts in the Lord, however, shall be exalted. The person who fears man is a person who is going to be in trouble. But look at the second part. This would be what it means not to fear man. Who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Did Jesus fear the Lord? We say Jesus is the Lord. I know that. But within his humanity, did he fear the Father? When Isaiah writes about the coming of the Messiah in the 11th chapter, he says this, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And it's the spirit of knowledge and fear. The fear of the Lord, He greatly delights in. You can be sure that when Jesus came to earth as the Messiah, He feared the Lord. And what is the fear of the Lord? Psalm 112 verse 1 is the best place I can direct you for information. Do your own research, but this is what it says. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commands. Obedience to the commands of God is a picture. I'm talking about biblical commands, not man-made commands. What that states is that when we are men and women who want to obey the Lord, and we love to obey the Lord, that's an evidence that we fear the Lord. Think about Jesus in John six thirty-eight. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus, we see, was in great agony in Gethsemane. And he makes this prayer that's a little confusing in light of the fact that he knew his mission. He was to die for the sins of the world. He says, Father, if it's your will, could you remove this cup from me? He didn't pray that just once. He prayed it three times. What was going on in Jesus' heart? Was he having a crisis of faith in that situation? I don't think so. I've been pondering this all week. What I do know is Jesus was familiar with the wrath of God. And the cup that he was going to drink was the cup of the wrath of God. It was God who executed Christ on the cross by making Him become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And so Jesus, He says that He knows what's coming. And when He's on the cross, among the seven things which He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had never had a nanosecond of his existence when he was not in perfect communion with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And on the cross, because God has such pure eyes, the Bible says he cannot look at sin. God made him sin. God so loved us that he gave his only begotten Son. We just kind of flit right over that without understanding what that meant for Jesus and for the Father. The father agonized, I'm sure too, to see his son under the wrath of God. It was necessary to secure our salvation. He would have agreed Jesus would with Hebrews ten thirty-one, which says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hand of God. He knew that, and he fell into the hand of God, not as an ally, but as an enemy in that moment when he was on the cross and paid the price for my sin and your sin. He would have agreed also with Hebrews where it says our God is a consuming fire. Jesus suffered hell for a separation from God on the cross so we would not have to fall into the hands of a living God who is a consuming fire. Well, it's Jesus is a great alternative to the fear of man, isn't it? Let's fear God. Fear the Lord. And when we fear Him, He will be glorified and honored. He will live, live through us. Jesus Christ, where does He live right now? The Bible says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ lives in us. He comes to indwell us by the Spirit. He lives in you. And the same Jesus who was at peace and calm can give us the same sort of peace when we face opposition, which Jesus promises we're going to have pushback when we follow Him. He says, if anyone w- wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. I want to conclude by quoting one more verse from the Proverbs 18.24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. May I ask you, who is that friend? Everybody else will turn their back on you and me in certain circumstances, but who will never leave you nor forsake you? Jesus won't if you know Him. And He'll walk you through that storm you face i wish we had time to consider shadrach meshach and abednego read about their story in daniel and how when they were thrown into the furnace nebuchadnezzar looked into this fiery furnace he says weren't there only three when we sent them in there looks like there's a fourth in there and he appears to be a son of god well he was right the lord's with us in those kinds of situations He's our friend. Pilate had no friends anywhere. And yet there stood before him the one who was God Almighty and the King of kings come in the flesh, nevertheless stooped to be the friend of sinners. Jesus loves you and me that much that He gave His life for us and He calls us to be different. We be like him. Not looking for a fight, but being willing to represent him to people who don't know him and to stand up on behalf of him when it comes to commands we receive to not obey the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to look into this passage of Scripture And I just ask, Father, you would help us to draw on your courage. We claim the promise where you say, you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Thank you, Lord. Amen.